Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit! We are now addressed by the living Lord through his living word. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his, fa- to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven, And said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us here on this resurrection, this Easter morning. And Lord, give us your Holy Spirit, both to understand this, your very word, and to draw us into the presence, even of Jesus of Nazareth, given for us and for the world. Lord, fill us with joy, we pray, and would we all here know the welcome that you give us by grace and by grace alone. Be with us now, O Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. 
and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Newsflash, preachers feel a lot of things on Easter, and we try to. In fact, I was meeting with some Liberty pastors this week over Zoom, and one of the things that we were praying was that we as ministers who are leading congregations through Holy Week, including all the way up to and through Easter morning, praying that we would actually experience Holy Week for ourselves, that it wouldn't just be an external thing that we're doing for other people, but not really feeling the weight ourselves, but that we'd experience it. So, you ask, Jim, how you doing? How you doing? Jim, how you feeling? I'm feeling great. Easter's always a lot of fun. It just feels like a touchdown church moment. Like, if you can ever picture the Eagles winning a Super Bowl, this is how I feel right now on Easter Sunday. It feels great. I can zoom out a little bit. One of the things I love about Easter is that the reality of Easter has everything to do with everything that the church does throughout the year. The resurrection of Jesus energizes, animates, is the reason for all of the rest of this stuff. It's glorious. And so it's not just Easter morning, but all the time where there's hope and life and joy and love because Jesus is crucified and resurrected. But if I zoom out one more time, this is where it starts to get a little bit tricky. I was mentioning this a couple weeks ago in a sermon as well. If Easter is joy and hope and love and life, there's not a ton of that in the world in general. We're missing that. And so sometimes when I think about Easter from the inside, glorious joy Touchdown, amazing. But such a sad world all around. And so during Holy Week, including on Easter morning, I can sometimes feel a sad cognitive dissonance. Because do you know what happens after Easter Sunday? Monday. And it's going to be a Monday in the sad world that we all know. Kind of like this. One of the silver linings over pandemic was we had a lot of family movie nights in the anger home, including with my two boys that were in high school, who were usually out with friends evenings, weekends, but they weren't. And so movies with dad became a thing again. And one of the ones that I watched for I don't know how many times, but for their first time was Good Morning Vietnam. Do you know that movie? Good Morning Vietnam, classic Robin Williams plays uh, Armed Services radio DJ, and he's sent to Vietnam during the Vietnam War. Classic movie, a ton of iconic scenes. Here's one of them. Do you remember the scene that has the Louis Armstrong song, What a Wonderful World? It's like this. Robin Williams befriends a couple of soldiers, and these soldiers are sent off into one of the bloodiest parts of the Vietnam conflict, which is a certain death sentence. And so two friends of his are being shipped out, and they probably will not live very much longer. And so Robin Williams, the DJ, that morning on the radio, dedicates Louis Armstrong's wonderful world to them. You know the song, See leaves of green, red roses too, I see them bloom for me and you. What, what a wonderful world, right? It's a needle drop, and then as the camera watches those soldiers shipping out, 
It doesn't stay there. The song keeps playing and it becomes a montage, but the images shown in the montage contain anything but a wonderful world. I wrote down the different scenes. You can find it on YouTube really easy. So the soldiers travel off. Then you see military helicopters. Then you see Vietnamese people working in rice fields. Then you see those same rice fields blown up, bombed. You see burning buildings. You see military arrests and executions. The whole time, what a wonderful world is playing. You see protesters being brutalized by police. You see soldiers' boots in mud. And to me, the most evocative moment of that montage is you see a solitary, empty, bloody flip-flop on the ground. And what a juxtaposition there, right? That whole scene is almost unbearably, heartbreakingly wrenching. And among other things, that scene raises the question, how can these two things exist in the same world? Is our world wonderful after all? And I feel some of those same tensions as it relates to Easter, as I think about how Easter relates to all the rest of the stuff. Is Easter really for this world? If resurrected Jesus is hope and life and love and joy, is that Easter for this world? And so there's tensions. But we can think of it this way. Tensions, dissonances, are actually built into the Easter story. So if Monday comes after Easter Sunday, what happened a couple of days ago? Good Friday, where we remember the crucifixion of Jesus with all of the sadness, with all of the tears, with all of the mourning. And so you see, the Easter story itself contains, from one perspective, intention, the agony and the ecstasy. And by analogy, Christian theologians talk about, and we talk about it here at Liberty Collingswood, that if you're a follower of Jesus, we are living in the middle of the already not yet. Jesus is already resurrected. His kingdom has come, has erupted into the old order on earth, but Jesus has not yet come again. And so all things are not yet made new. And so we're living in some of that tension as well. But God carries us forward through that tension. He gives us a bridge. And here's my answer. Why does What a Wonderful World work so well in that scene in Good Morning Vietnam in the midst of the montage of absolute carnage and sadness? Because it's jazz. That's my answer. And admittedly, What a Wonderful World for Louis Armstrong is one of his poppier songs. It was a late career hit for him. And his chops for trumpet were coming and going by that point, so there's actually no horn on What a Wonderful World, which, was un which would have been unheard of for earlier in Louis Armstrong's career. But a sunshine pop song would not have worked during that montage in Good Morning Vietnam because Louis Armstrong, no matter what he's singing, his voice is all jazz. So you hear in Armstrong's voice the wonder 
and you also hear the weeping. And so, as followers of Jesus, when we live in the tension of the already, not yet, that's jazz too. Living in some of these tensions. And what do you know? Genesis chapter 22, the sacrifice of Isaac, this is a jazz text. In the sense that there are dissonances, that there are tensions, things don't make sense, things don't add up. As we go through this story here, what's going to happen? So far, if you've been tracking with us here at Liberty Collingswood, God has given a ton of covenant promises. We've talked about what covenant is before, the structure of God's promises by which he will redeem a people and redeem all things. Abraham, through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Your offspring will be as many as stars in the sky and sand on the seashore. It's all going to come from your line. It's going to come from you. And then here in our story, you're going to need to kill Isaac. That's attention to the point of paradox. And I think we can stare it in the face and say, this really doesn't make any sense. And two of the leading lights of our theological tradition, John Calvin and Martin Luther in the 1500s, they said as much. This is Calvin about the story. The command and the promise of God here are in contradiction or Martin Luther. This story is a contradiction with which God contradicts himself. So within this story, there's pathos, there's dissonance, but there's also beauty as we journey through. And one more time, that's also like jazz, where you have dissonance sometimes by design, but then deep and enduring beauty as well. And this is what I want you to take away here on this Easter morning. For you, for us, for our world, God will, God has provided. So two parts from here. We're going to talk about paradox, and then we're going to talk about promise. And so Genesis chapter 22 here, this is not the last that we see of Abraham, but as we move through the book of Genesis, this in many, many ways is the culmination of the whole long arc of Abraham's journey that began all the way back 10, 11 chapters earlier in Genesis chapter 12 that goes like this. Now the Lord said to Abram in Genesis 12, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and so on. All by your seed, Abraham, by your offspring. And so if God has made this covenant with Abraham, you could call what's happening here in Genesis chapter 22 a covenant crisis. If Isaac is going to be done away with, what now? So these tensions, these ambiguities are brewing throughout this passage, and the writer of Genesis so masterfully builds up the tension in a lot of different ways. Verse 2, take your son, God doesn't say that once. He says it multiple times. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Now, God didn't say it this way, I think, because Abraham was thinking, oh, what son do you mean again? Oh, that one? Okay. No, it just adds to the pathos of everything that's going on. And that refrain is returned to later on in the passage as God says, don't do it, don't go through with it, the language of your son, your only son, the singular relationship between a dad and his boy is highlighted once again. 
Multiple times in the story it said, so they went, Abraham and Isaac, both of them together. Verse 6, or again verse 8. So they went, both of them, together. And a call back at the end of the passage, and they went together to Beersheba. And here's a tip for reading biblical narrative. Pay attention to when the pace slows down. Because that's the biblical writer saying, zoom in, take a look, linger, spend some time. And this buildup to Abraham and Isaac going up the mountain doesn't need to take all of this space. But we see detail after detail after detail, taking the knife, taking the wood, saddling the donkey, going a little bit farther and a little bit farther and a little bit farther, ratcheting up the tension. And we get to verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Bible factoid, this word for binding here and God or Abraham bound Isaac, this word binding here, it's the only time that it's used in the entirety of the Hebrew scriptures, just this once. And in Judaic traditions, this story is called the Akedah, which is the word for binding here. And if there's any question as to what Abraham intends, we have verse 10. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. In the midst of this unbearable tension, God, where are you? What is going on? But we realize, in the same breath, isn't life a lot like that? When we have these cognitive dissonances, this tension, and hopefully for most of us, most of the time, not as dramatic as Louis Armstrong singing What a Wonderful World and something as gory as what was going on in Vietnam. But we bounce back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And you might think, if you're here this morning as somebody who's skeptical of spiritual realities, thank you so much for being here, that, that faith is distressed when we're living in some of those tensions and ambiguities. But from my perspective, I would say, actually, faith is built for this. It's built for this. And in the scriptures themselves, God allows for ambiguities and tensions and dissonances. It's written into the story as centrally as Good Friday to Easter. So there's comfort there, but also challenge, if I could put it this way. God is freely sovereign. God does whatever God wants to do. A couple of weeks ago, we were talking about Lightning Hopkins, the old blues artist, when Lightning said, Lightning plays the changes when Lightning wants to play the changes. God is freely sovereign. And if you ask me, or maybe you don't ask me, ask a Bible scholar, why does God do this? Well, there is a testing element that's said as much at the beginning of the chapter, but people that have spent their lives, Christian and Jewish scholars, studying this passage, by and large, it's the shrug emoji. We don't really know. Why is God doing this? But this is what we're able to see and say. On the basis of this story and otherwise, we are able to and called to trust God beyond what we can see and move forward in faith. Trust God beyond what we can see and move forward in faith. That's what Abraham models to us here. 
in the Hebrew scriptures, there's a formula. We've talked about it earlier in other parts of biblical narrative, a command and consent formula that shows that this biblical character is really obeying right now. So the command in verse 2, take your son, your only son, go to the land of Moriah, offer him there as a burnt offering, and then the very next verse, Abraham did that. So Abraham here is a paradigm of faith. And a couple different times in the story, it's highlighted Abraham went here or Abraham did this just as God had told him. And when God reiterates the covenant promises at the very end of this story here, an echo of Genesis 12 and everything that God has promised to and through Abraham ahead of that, the reason that God says, okay, I'm giving these covenant promises to you again is because I see that you have obeyed. Verse 12 or verse 16, you have kept my word. So, in the midst of ambiguities, of tensions, of pathos, of sadness, we are called by God to trust God beyond what we can see and move forward in faith and obedience. Now, you might think about that. Is it really that simple? I would say no, but also yes. If we don't trust God beyond what we see, what are the alternatives? And I would say for me, whether Christians or non-Christians, east, west, north, south, what do we do when our world is unbearably sad, violent, and broken? Well, in the midst of all of those things, we will either try to relax, ignore, or despair. I don't think any of those are great options. The world is sad and broken. I'm just going to try to numb out Blur it out and relax a little bit. And maybe you've had phases in your life where you've tried that. It doesn't last. There's only so much hakuna that you can do to that matata before you say, wait a second, this isn't working. Or a stronger form, ignore, 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 ignore. Press it down, press it down, press it down. But life has a way of roaring back. Or we just give in to the sadness and despair. Maybe you've been in that phase in your life in different ways. Maybe you're there right now. But instead, we are given a gracious invitation by the living Lord to trust God beyond what we can see, like Abraham here. If you would have asked Abraham, why is God doing this? I'm sure Abraham would have said, I don't know, but I'm trusting and move ahead in faith and obedience, which is countercultural, I realize. And the critique could come and say, well, that's just a blind leap of faith. But I would respond, that works in multiple directions. And here in the late modern West, you may not recognize it, but at least in my opinion, there is a ton of pressure put on you and me as individuals to figure out our own reality from scratch, right? And we're hoping we're white-knuckling to say, hopefully we have enough knowledge, enough technology, enough technique right now that if I surround myself with the best thoughts that are out there, the best influencers, the best voices, I can come back within myself and piece together a reality of life, the universe, and, anything, and everything that I am deciding upon. To me, that's just as much a leap of faith. And the older I get, and I have, I have friends and, and loved ones that say, Jim, why, why, are you, why are you still doing this Jesus stuff? Why can't you just be a modern person? And I would say, well, 
as a follower of Jesus, I actually don't think it's that crazy to say, I am living in a stream of billions of people who throughout millennia have hewed to the faithfulness of God as it's revealed to us in the scriptures. And followers of Jesus have proven themselves by the grace of God, incredibly resilient in countless types of cultural contexts around the world and throughout the ages. I'm placing myself there. Is that crazy? I don't think that it is. And it's a leap of faith at the very least in any direction. But we can trust God beyond what we see and say, okay, God, I hope you know what you're doing. I trust that you know what you're doing. I don't see it, but that's okay. That's the faith of Abraham. One writer about, the passage, about this passage put it this way. Abraham practices obedience, which does not hold back even what is most precious when God demands it and commits it to God, even that future with which he himself has promised. So as you move by the grace of God and faith towards Jesus, if that's where you are this morning, what are some aspects of our sad or your sad, ambiguous, pathos-filled, ambiguity-driven, tension-stressed lives where you are called to trust God beyond what you can see? and say, God, I trust that you've got this. I'm going to keep stepping ahead in faith. It is paradoxical, it seems, what Abraham is called to by God here, but there's also promise. The key to this whole passage is in verse 8. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Abraham says, God's going to provide. Although there is a question at this point in the story, how, what's going to happen? And earlier, scholars and people of faith in this tradition for, for generations have pondered, what does Abraham mean in verse 5? When he says, stay here with the donkey, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. He says, we're going to come back. And it's actually unclear. Is this a bold statement of rock-solid faith? My boy will live. One way or another, I'm going to come back with him. Or is it a wavering hope? I'm not sure, but I'm putting my chips in the corner of the best case scenario here. Or is it a simple misdirection to his servants? This isn't going to happen, but I'm just telling you that it is so you don't freak out. And how will God provide a way for us to be with him forever? You could also say that's the central question in all of the Hebrew scriptures, in all of the Bible. And for the purposes of this story, we see that God has provided a substitute. If the key to this whole passage is in verse 8, Abraham saying God will provide, the climax is 11 and 12. And you can picture it viscerally, vividly, visually. Abraham reached out his hand, verse 11, and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, here I am. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Stop! And the promises of covenant that God reiterates starting in verse 15, those promises, covenant promises, are secured by the fact that God has offered a substitute, that ram. 
And Abraham lifted up his eyes, verse 13, and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. And we move ahead from there to Jesus of Nazareth, Christ our Passover lamb, who is sacrificed for us, the center of the story, the key moment of God's substitute for us in our place, the center of the story that answers the question, God will provide how? Here it is. Really, the crucial need for us as human beings. And friends, here's some good news. The bottom line of the Bible is not is not, even though I've been saying it, trust God beyond what you can see, because that's just a riff on try harder. And should we try? Should we strive? Of course. But that's not the center of the story. That's not the bottom line. Trust God beyond what you can see, but hope in God beyond what you can dare, because Jesus is crucified and resurrected. And what do you know? There are substitution riffs and melodies scattered throughout the story of Jesus crucified and resurrected. At Good Friday, just a couple of days ago, Pilate addresses the crowds. Jesus is in custody. Barabbas is in custody. Hey, one of these two can go free. Which one do you prefer? Jesus, the innocent one in whom I find no fault? Or on the other hand, an insurrectionist and murderer, not this guy. And the crowd says, yeah, we like that guy. Barabbas. Substitute. Or remember the thief on the cross, which we also read on Friday night. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And indeed, we justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replies, Truly, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Because on the cross, Jesus paid it all for our sin and rose again in victory over sin and death and the devil for all time. And this is, to me, the best jazz. God is freely sovereign, and he is graciously faithful. He's freely sovereign. He's king and graciously faithful to us. And this is where we'll start to wrap up. Abraham says in verse 8, the Lord will provide, and God has provided for all time in Jesus. We are able both to play and pay that forward. On its own, we're not sure what Abraham is thinking when he says, I and the boy are going to come back. But an interpretation from the New Testament puts it this way from the book of Hebrews and the New Testament scriptures. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Or Bible scholar Walter Brueggemann. This is your reflection quote at the beginning of the worship folder. Faith is nothing other than the trust and the power of the resurrection against every deathly circumstance. Abraham knows beyond understanding that God will find a way to bring life even in this scenario of death. That is the faith of Abraham. That is the faith of the listening community. 
And that is the meaning of the ram at the last moment. A substitute is not brought by Abraham, but given by God in his inscrutable graciousness. Do we know how everything's going to go? No. In our lives. But we're able to say God will provide. In your darkness. In your deathliness. Through death itself. God has provided a substitute for you. Receive this Christ by faith. And you could say that one of the primary objectives of following Jesus and living the Christian life is connecting our reality to the empty tomb. Remind yourself over and over and over again, in your sadness, which is real, the tomb is empty. In your depression, the tomb is empty. In your anxiety, the tomb is empty. In your confusion, the tomb is empty. In your broken relationships, the tomb is empty. In all of the deep regrets in your life, the tomb is empty. In your horrible job situation, if that's where you are, the tomb is empty. In your financial distress, the tomb is empty. In the political chaos of our world, the tomb is empty. In your broken familial relationships, the tomb is empty. In your addictions, the tomb is empty. In the deepest, darkest recesses of your and my sin, the tomb is empty. Jesus has conquered all of it. People think that there's one place in particular where the Apostle Paul alludes to this story, and that's in the book of Romans. He who did not spare his own son, speaking of God the Father, in language of the Isaac story, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So play forward the reality of God's provision in your life. Trusting God beyond what you can see, hoping beyond what you can dare, but then also pay it forward. If Jesus is crucified and resurrected and you believe that, live like it and witness to it. If you have received the provision of God and Christ, how can you be generous and provide and serve other people, paying forward grace tangibly in your life? All because, all because. God has provided. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.